making 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 contact making contact <laughs> I'm Salima Hamarani and on today's making contact So everything from healthcare to education to public works has been gutted and gutted and gutted and gutted and what has been spared austerity two things law enforcement and the military We talked to organizers about the movement which started last year during the George Floyd protests called Defund the Police. We're in a particular moment right now and our job as organizers is to extract as many wins as possible for the people because we've got the momentum behind us right now. These sorts of ideas aren't new, but they've never been so popular. So what's worked, what hasn't, and where do we go from here? Our first stop today to learn more about defunding the police is around Lake Merritt on a crowded Saturday afternoon in Oakland, where I spent some time with a group called Mental Health First, or MH First, as they spoke to people on the street. So that's a mental health um, resource baggie. We had some mental health resources in there, and we're MH First, so we have our flyer. Okay. And we set ourselves. My name is Olivia Park, and I am one of the core members of Mental Health First, which is a community response, non-police response to crises. My name is Kaya Carter. I use they, she pronouns. So I'm out here with some comrades. We're setting up a tent, talking to community about the Mental Health First Project. A place like Oakland has a history of setting itself up to provide interventions that are oppressive. I mean, we have a means by way of just putting out community efforts and collective efforts to really setting up a safety or a sense of safety for ourselves. Um, aside from, you know, policing and other like paramilitary forces that are out in our communities. We launched around August of 2020. And so we launched as a hotline. You know, we have different types of experiences, both professional and lived experiences. For example, I suffered, I still suffer from mental illness and was institutionalized most of my adolescent life. And most of my friends from that era then became incarcerated. I am now a doctor, um, graduated from UCSF. Yeah, and we also have some information here about the defund police campaigns that are going around. You might have heard a little bit about them throughout the last summer and throughout the year. So we're throwing down with them too. We believe that anyone can be trained, has the knowledge and the resources within themselves to respond to such things. And it's just, you know, the knowledge and the resources have been siloed and kept away. We take all calls, you know, if they're in crisis or they are witnessing a crisis, if someone's worried that someone else is going to call the cops on their neighbor, those are the kind of calls we get. We also get calls from concerned citizens saying, you know, I see this person, he seems to be having a mental health crisis, I'm not sure what to do. And then in that case, what do you do? Do you call out other responders that are not the police? No, we talk with the person, you know. So you, you get them on the phone or you do you go there yourself? We get them on the phone, okay. yeah. Do you go in yourself? Or does, it, does MH first go to the... Like physically? Yeah. That is the idea, but because of the pandemic, we haven't yet to be able to do that. This is our second week out here and people are really uh, gracious. People are really happy to see us out. They have questions um, and it's just community and it just validates that we know exactly what we want. And so when the community sees that it's happening, they're on board. 
And do you feel like most people know what defund the police is, that this is part of that? I think that, you know, like, what last summer did was was just, you know, kind of open up a vote around, like, a pushback of hegemony around what it looks like to just, like, peer into a budget and see where mon- or funny funds and money can go to, to really be placed back in the community. And so I think at this point, people kind of get a, a gist. I haven't had to explain to anybody what defund has meant as of right now. People are looking for folks to come out who are not the police. Okay. This is great. Anyway, yeah. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Well, we Have a good rest of your day. <laughs> Again, that was Kaya Carter and Olivia Park from MH First, and they're a pilot program created to find new ways to address emergency situations in Oakland where usually people would call the police. They're just one of hundreds of projects that have sprung up around the country in the wake of the protests last year. I sat down with two organizers, Lex Stepling from Los Angeles and Hiram Rivera from Philadelphia to talk more about what defund the police even means and the kinds of successes the movement has had this year. Lex, um, let's start with you. Can you tell me what we mean by the term defund the police? What does that even mean? Because I think there's some confusion. Is this an abolitionist call? Do we do we want to get rid of the police entirely? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about it as we were talking because you ask any abolitionist, do they believe in defund? And they would say, yeah. You ask anybody who believes in defund, do they believe in abolition? you might not get a a monolith of answers. But but it has been put forth as a very radical idea, or at least the right wing has been treating it like that. Is it a radical demand? I mean, I think in an era where there is such a saturation of media and such a democratization of information, these terms become proliferated widespread really quickly. And for better and for worse, I think it's mostly a good thing. I think it's mostly allowing for a lot of self-reporting, but it also allows for things to spread faster than they have time to be thought about. And so I say that to say that if you ask, you know, 10 people that question, you might get 10 different answers. So I can tell you what defund the police means to me, for myself, for us as a team, with the work we've been doing, it's a starting point. But the logic behind it is not radical at all to say law enforcement budgets are huge compared to everything else. We're in what the fourth decade, fifth decade, maybe even of austerity politics. So everything from healthcare to education, to public works, to infrastructure has been gutted and gutted and gutted and gutted. And what has been spared austerity, two things, law enforcement and the military. And one can argue that those things are synonymous at this point. And so when one actually stops and looks at those budgets, defund feels like a very rational first step in assessing a crisis level problem, which is to look at their budgets and begin divesting from them and investing back in the things that have been taken from us systematically for the last three, four decades. So it's the most basic form of reparations, really. It's much more about civic government and quality of life, and what we want around public safety and things like that. Hiram, is there anything that you would like to add to that? I think Lex nailed it, right? Very simply, it's it's what was originally referred to as invest, divest, right? Finding ways to reimagine what public safety could look like without a reliance or over-reliance on the police. 
and divesting from the police budgets and reinvesting those dollars into things that we know do create safe communities, affordable housing, access to employment, quality schools, quality healthcare. At the bare minimum, I believe that it does act as an entry for a lot of folks who are new to organizing, who are new to police accountability, to begin to start thinking about those questions of a world without police force. And so while I may not agree that is an inherently abolitionist call or framework, I do believe that it is an entry for a lot of folks to start to begin to start having these these conversations and asking these questions. Right. So Lex, can you talk to me about some of your successes this past year? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of our biggest successes recently was stopping Prop 25 here in California, which was the quintessential liberal reform that we are usually told to just shut up and get behind, where the top line sounded great. We're going to end cash bail. And then everything underneath it was by replacing it with mass incarceration and surveillance. Fortunately, we won through a completely grassroots oriented people power campaign. We're never going to have the currency of our opposition. What we do have is people. This was coming off the heels of several other wins. We were able to step into the context here in Los Angeles where we are the largest jailing county and the largest jailing state and the largest jailing country in the history of the world. Any given day in, in Southern California, we had an average daily jail population of between 30 and 40,000. So we're a mega complex of incarceration. And then the county was trying to invest 3.5 to $4.5 billion in expanding what was already the largest jail system in the world. And we said, absolutely not. And to make a very long story very short, we did stop the jail plan. We did terminate the contract. We canceled everything. We stopped three jails from being built. And then in the process, developed a comprehensive alternatives to incarceration vision with the county to essentially replace our history of mass incarceration, our system of mass incarceration with what we all collectively decided to call a community-based systems of care. Hiram, I see you nodding. Is there anything you want to add about the success of defund, either in your city or on, on the national level? Yeah, there have been some great wins, specifically in the city of Milwaukee, which is the only one that I know of that actually won a, a real defund campaign right through the African-American roundtable where they defunded their police department. They increased the salaries of city employees and a bunch of other different things and diverted those dollars into other programs. One of them, which was their uh, violence interrupted program that also had an immediate impact. The organization Interrupting Criminalization which is, is partly headed up by Andrea Ritchie, put out this great resource a while back on defund. And in there, they capture a lot of the victories that were happening, right? And in it, the, the report says over 20 cities had generated some sort of defunding victory, right? Total, collectively, $840 million had been divested from the police department during this period. And investments of at least $160 million were put back into communities which is not nothing. Another thing I wanted to highlight was that over 25 cities had canceled their contracts with local police departments operating in schools. And so always want to lift up the work of the unnamed, the forgotten 13 to 19 year old students who have been putting for the last two decades, putting a lot of work to get police out of schools and reimagine right, what our world without police could look like. 
That was Lex Stepling and Hiram Rivera talking about Defund the Police. And you're listening to Making Contact. To find out more about our shows or get behind-the-scenes information, visit radioproject.org. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Making Contact. In the first half of the show, we talked about some of the momentous gains of the movement called Defund the Police. But there have been some challenges. Thank you so much, Madam President, and thank you for your introduction. I think you did a great job of laying out the process. I did just... You're listening to an Oakland City Council meeting. This year, despite public support for reinvesting police dollars into community, the City of Oakland increased the police budget, and the recent City Council meeting on the new budget was full of strong reactions. Frankly, I feel gaslit by Mayor Libby Schaaf's proposed budget. Last year saw the largest mass movement in the history of the United States, with folks in our city and across the U.S. rising up demanding an end to policing as usual. Over and over and over, Oaklanders have packed city council meetings calling for a 50% reduction in OPD's budget, a proposal which Oakland Rising has found is supported by 65% of Oaklanders. Why is 44% of the general fund plundered to fund the police when human needs are systematically defunded as a direct result? Who are Libby Schaaf's constituents, the OPD or us, the people of Oakland? I really strongly reject any increase in funding OPD. We need to defund OPD. We need to expand the restorative justice programs for our youth. It breaks my heart every time the Oakland police end up killing someone in mental distress instead of offering them help. So how much extra money are we talking about here? Millions. I mean, their budget would go up every single year. That's Kat Brooks. I spoke with Kat outside of her West Oakland home about what her organization, the Anti-Police Terror Project, has done and why it's been so difficult to redistribute funds away from the police and into community. Kat, you know you mentioned that the city has been giving the police millions, extra millions every year. Did we see this kind of investment in our communities during COVID, for example? Um, And I know Oakland, where we are, has been fighting to get housing for houseless folks throughout the pandemic. They wanted to put them into hotels which were empty at the time. So there was the CARES Relief Act that just came through, and, and then before that, the CARES Act, right? And so we, we got those those dollars. There's also the promise, by the way, of 75% reimbursement for the federal government for COVID-related things. So like, we literally could have used this time to house everybody. We could have said that everybody on the streets is extra vulnerable to both contracting and sharing the COVID-19 virus. So we're going to put everybody inside and then we're going to get reimbursed for it. We've never had that opportunity before. And guess what Oakland did? Nothing. But even then, you know, given the lack of investment in our communities during COVID, the lack of jobs, lack of government support, a lot of people that I talked to on the street were scared of defunding the police. And places like Minneapolis that said they were going to defund the police haven't really done that. So what in your mind is going on or, or what, are the, what are the challenges here? They didn't build up sustained public will for change. And what I mean by that is that when the city council said that they were going to dismantle the police department, that was reactionary. This horrible thing happened, the murder of George Floyd. There were thousands of people in the streets, 
Minneapolis and then tens thousands more right across the country. And let's also remember the history of the Minneapolis Police Department. Like, George Floyd is not the first black man that they had murdered, right? There's a movement afoot there already. Um, and, and so they, they reacted to it. But that's a big deal. Like, to say that you're going to take away what most people, even progressives, see as the only pathway towards public safety, the only vehicle they have to make sure that their kids sleep safe at night, people are going to have a reactionary response to your reactionary response. And so... What they should have done was figure out how we get from here to there and implement the most transformative, radical reforms that they possibly could in that moment. That they would have had public support for. But instead, there was backlash from the right and the left, and they had to back down or lose their jobs. So how do we get from here to there? Given the nervousness even of the left, what do we do? I'm going to say a a big, scary word. Organize. (laughs) We've bastardized the word organize and the term organizer. We've forgotten that that's actually a skill set. It's actually a craft. It's something people go learn how to do. But people, you know, for the last, I don't want to say from 2014 on, um, have, have been like, I'm an organizer, right? No, you're an angry person that's like calling for protests and that's great. Or you're really good on social media and crafting messages that go viral. That's awesome. But you're not building bases and you're not leveraging power and you're not doing power analysis and you're not examining the social conditions of now and you're not comparing it to the social conditions of then. And that's how we get from here to there. And that's going to look different in in various cities. And at some point we have to figure out what that looks like for us as a country. But that's talking to people. That's meeting the people where they're at. That's taking advantage of opportunities when they come up. We're in a particular moment right now. And our job as organizers, those of us who actually are that, is to extract as many wins as possible for the people because we've got the momentum behind us right now. APTP launched Defund OPD almost six years ago. Six years. And it's been steady drumbeat ever since. Talking to council members, putting out propaganda, pulling the data, putting out papers, talking to the media, changing the public debate so that when this moment was here, we are ready. You know, I'm talking to you about obstacles to the defund the police movement. And I think one of those obstacles is the Democratic Party. You know, Biden said that he wouldn't back defund the police. And the Democrats blamed the movement for costing seats in the past election. What What is going on here? I think they're missing such a huge opportunity. And I actually, I was thinking about this I got to it a little bit differently than the path that we're taking right now. But Biden is to the left of wherever I thought he was going to be, where most of us thought he was going to be. Like, we all just were like, all right, we're going to have a centrist for the next four years. But it's not that dude, right? It's not that orange person. And I've been pleasantly surprised. And so I was sort of, I was trying to think, I was like, why is that? Like, why is he further to the left? Because white people aren't going to be the majority for long, but they still are. But even then... BIPOC folks are not the majority voting base. So what really is he responding to? And I, and, and I think it's because white folks are, more white folks are in alignment with the calls of folks of color and our demands for justice and the party is getting younger. I think if the party was smart and if they wanted to really gain some serious ground right now, they would move as far to the left as is humanly possible and they would suck up all these black people. And you're right, Kat, that there has been some movement on the federal level where we've never seen any change, um, at least when it comes to policing, even with Obama, who was in office during the first big explosion of the Black Lives Matter protests. So talk to me about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Is that 
a step in the right direction or not? I mean, all, I won't say all progress is good progress. So for a long time, APTP, we didn't mess with reform because it was about fixing things, right? Reform means to fix, to make better. You can't make policing better and you can't fix it. It's not broken. We support reforms that chip away at the status quo, not reinforce it. So I would say conversations about ending qualified immunity, that's a step in the right direction. Conversations about more money for more training for cops, I'm not so interested in having that conversation. Do you know what I mean? I'm interested in conversations about accountability. I'm interested in conversations about shifting um, resources from cops to community to do things that cops shouldn't be doing. So I think it's both and. Is it what we want? Absolutely not. Is it all of what we want? Absolutely not. The Peace Officers Bill of Rights. California has the strongest Peace Officers Bill of Rights in the entire country. It's like a, a behemoth mountain of right policy and protections for cops. And for a long time, activists like tried to take down the whole thing and take down the whole thing. Never going to happen. But you know what can happen? Let's change the use of force policy. Let's open up records to things like 1421, right? It's a piece at a time, at least to my mind. Okay, so the other huge obstacle is the police unions. And I've been thinking about this a lot because it's a known fact that white supremacists are deeply involved in the military and the police but even I've been surprised to learn about the extent of that infiltration. And having their names and seeing departments do nothing about it. Like that's, to, to me, that's the thing. Great, we have their names. Scarier than that is that their names have been published in everything from The Guardian to The Intercept to The Los Angeles Times and their bosses are like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. And I don't call them unions. I call them associations because they don't represent labor. But but they are. They're a formidable opponent. They are the formidable opponent, right? Their whole job is to protect bad cops and to protect policing as we know it. Um, they have their hands in just about every single, even the so-called progressives for the most part, right? Their hands in the, po- in the pockets of almost every single politician there is. Um, there is a coalition that is formed between San Francisco... Los Angeles and San Jose, their police associations, and they're putting out commercials and ads and co-opting our language and trying to shift the public debate and influence their, their local policymakers, right, to invest in them and not in defund. And I, I honestly, I don't have the answer. There's some good data that, that came out that showed that actually cities with stronger police associations have more incidents of police violence, not less. So they're, they're a direct contributor to the problem. And, and really, I, I, I think part of the answer is labor, organized labor's got to stand up. They've got to do things like we saw in Seattle, right, where they kicked them out of the, the labor federations. That, I think, is the first step towards disempowering them. And then I think that there needs to be some legislation, some policies about, for instance, police unions shouldn't be able to contribute to district attorney's campaigns. That should be illegal. What, what in your mind, is the biggest obstacle moving forward when it comes to dealing with police violence? Us. All of us, from the time that we hear anything, so I'd say from the time we were in mama's womb, right, are taught that cops are the folks that get the kittens out of the trees and walk the old ladies across the street, and this is who you call if you're in trouble, and it's such a dangerous job. We love and respect and honor our police, and this is if, if you're in trouble, this is the only way out. The only way, right? Nothing else is going to work except for this. And so people talk about decolonizing their minds all the time. I don't know that there's a place where we need to decolonize our minds more than it is around what public safety is and the role that police play, and I would say don't play, actually, in, in keeping people safe. And so we advocate for policies that hurt us. I mean, is why we've invested, APTP has invested in creating alternative models. Because for the folks that are on that pathway and are, you know, evolving to a place where like, oh, wait, no, this actually isn't the only way to do this. We can do something different. 
and, and they call us or someone else, like we had to have something ready to go because there is going to be stuff. There's always going to be stuff. It's how we choose to respond. We see these crime spikes happening. It's not just Oakland. It's all over the country in urban areas because poverty, the conditions of poverty have been exacerbated because of COVID. That's why. And people are like, we can't get rid of the police because look at all this crime. The police have the money now. Right now, nobody's taking anything away from them. They haven't been able to keep us safe. Why do we continue to grab at something? If, if there's any other industry that failed at its job, at its stated job, the way policing does, right, we would be ripping it apart to shreds. But we're brainwashed. And then don't mention the propaganda. Dun, dun, dun. Law and order, 48 investigates, investigative ID. I'm guilty. I watch that mess for 24 hours at a time. I don't know why that decompresses me, but it does. Don't judge. But I mean, right, the movies, uh, Lethal Weapon. We worship law enforcement in this country. Even those of us that are beaten, battered, incarcerated, raped, and murdered by them on a daily basis. Yeah, I love those shows. And they're, they are, they're weirdly addictive and calming. And, you know, they have you rooting for the cop. You're rooting for the cop. But, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe we are the biggest impediment. And I think some people are so overwhelmed by the idea of dealing with violence in their own communities. They feel like they don't know how or they can't. And that they really do need the cops to keep them safe, as you said. So what do we do with that? I feel like there's like a, a skill set that we've lost in our communities about uh, dealing with violence. We're going to do what we did on Tuesday. How about that? So Tuesday in Oakland, a man that, that had been up for several days, we know there was substance abuse in, in, involved, crashed into an apartment complex, had a gun on his lap, and the police came and community called APTP. And APTP showed up and we were able to actually work with OPD, get the mother back there to negotiate him out of the car, right? Nobody got hurt. The brother, yeah, he had to go to jail, but he's breathing. So, so yes, we can. And who taught you? Who told you that? Who told you that lie about yourself? <laughs> that you're not powerful enough, smart enough, capable enough? I, who, you, that's what you need to be questioning. Who told you that lie? A couple of final questions. Um... There has been some discomfort from social workers specifically who don't want to work directly with the police when it comes to de-escalation. Is that what we're pushing for when we're trying to redirect funds to have therapists or, or social workers go out with the police? Yeah, co-response models are not what we're asking for, right? Well, because co-response co models, and it's actually something that Alameda County has now and, and municipalities across the country have now, right? Where a social worker goes out with a cop. The reality is that people still get killed that way and that the social worker is never going to have more power or equal power or be able to tell a cop to stand down. That's not how that works. So, yeah, there's concern. There's concerns about putting the money in the wrong hands, the wrong nonprofit. It's my concern about Oakland right now, that there are community groups out here that don't care about what training the, these responders get who, who have no understanding of the fact that the medical industrial complex is just as deadly to black bodies as, as policing is. It's not just about who responds, it's how we respond. Otherwise, we're just going to replicate the thing that we replaced. And I guess you're right. In the end, we don't want to respond to trauma by adding more trauma. We want to try to mitigate trauma. Exactly. I've been really obsessing lately about mental health, but as it's a byproduct of trauma and wounding and the ways in which white supremacy traumatizes and wounds us. It's not a new concept. People way smarter than me have been thinking about this for way longer. But I guess I've grown more and more convinced that that's actually the silver bullet. All this other stuff, they're band-aids, oftentimes band-aids on gunshot wounds. They're dams to, like, control the flood, but it's the water's still going to be running. But for, for us, 
I, I think it's, it's got to be about addressing the trauma and the wounding of white supremacy. When these murders happen, we send eight cops and no trauma workers. Somebody help me understand how that makes sense. The trauma of poverty. I know what it's like to look at brown water being the only color water that's coming out of your faucet and you've got to bathe in that thing anyway and what that does to your head. And I'm saying that now from a, a pretty privileged place. There's PTSD around poverty, incarceration, what that does. We take people and we put them in the most violent institutions known to man and then we spit them back out in our communities with no resources or support and expect them to act right. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and like, so where are all the places that we could intervene in the trauma and the wounding? That to me is the silver bullet. And, and that's got to be a huge piece of any of these models that we're building. That was Kat Brooks from the organization, the Anti-Police Terror Project. And that does it for this edition of Making Contact. If you'd like to leave us your thoughts about defunding the police, visit us at radioproject.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Making Contact. And on Instagram, we're Making Contact Radio Project. The Making Contact team includes Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Making Contact.